Section 5 of Chapter 16 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 16, Section 5. This liturgy was composed, circulated, and read, it is said, in some congregations of Jacobite schismatics, before William set out for Ireland, but did not attract general notice till the appearance of a foreign armament on our coast had roused the national spirit. Then rose a roar of indignation against the Englishmen who had dared under the hypocritical pretense of devotion to imprecate curses on England. The deprived prelates were suspected, and not without some show of reason, for the non-jurors were, to a man, zealous Episcopalians. Their doctrine was that, in ecclesiastical matters of grave moment, nothing could be well done without the sanction of the bishop, and could it be believed that any who held this doctrine would compose a service, print it, circulate it, and actually use it in public worship without the approbation of Sancroft, whom the whole party revered, not only as the true primate of all England, but also as a saint and a confessor. It was known that the prelates who had refused the oaths had lately held several consultations at Lambeth. The subject of these consultations, it was now said, might easily be guessed. The Holy Fathers had been engaged in framing prayers for the destruction of the Protestant colony in Ireland, for the defeat of the English fleet in the Channel, and for the speedy arrival of a French army in Kent. The extreme section of the Whig party pressed this accusation with vindictive eagerness. This, then, said those implacable politicians, was the fruit of King William's merciful policy. Never had he committed a greater error than when he had conceived the hope that the hearts of the clergy were to be won by clemency and moderation. He had not chosen to give credit to men who had learned by a long and bitter experience that no kindness will tame the sullen ferocity of a priesthood. He had stroked and pampered when he should have tried the effect of chains and hunger. He had hazarded the good will of his best friends by protecting his worst enemies. Those bishops who had publicly refused to acknowledge him as their sovereign and who, by that refusal, had forfeited their dignities and revenues, still continued to live unmolested in palaces which ought to be occupied by better men. And for this indulgence, an indulgence unexampled in the history of revolutions, what return had been made to him? Even this, that the men whom he had, with so much tenderness, screened from just punishment, had the insolence to describe him in their prayers as a persecutor defiled with the blood of the righteous. They asked for grace to endure with fortitude his sanguinary tyranny. They cried to heaven 
for a foreign fleet and army to deliver them from his yoke. Nay, they hinted at a wish so odious that even they had not the front to speak it plainly. One writer, in a pamphlet which produced a great sensation, expressed his wonder that the people had not, when Tourville was riding victorious in the channel, bewitted the non-juring prelates. Excited as the public mind then was, there was some danger that this suggestion might bring a furious mob to Lambeth. At Norwich, indeed, the people actually rose, attacked the palace which the bishop was still suffered to occupy, and would have pulled it down but for the timely arrival of the train bands. The government very properly instituted criminal proceedings against the publisher of the work which had produced this alarming breach of the peace. The deprived prelates, meanwhile, put forth the defence of their conduct. In this document they declared, with all solemnity, and as in the presence of God, that they had no hand in the new liturgy, that they knew not who had framed it, that they had never used it, that they had never held any correspondence directly or indirectly with the French court, that they were engaged in no plot against the existing government, and that they would willingly shed their blood rather than see England subjugated by a foreign prince, who had, in his own kingdom, cruelly persecuted their Protestant brethren. As to the right who had marked them out to the public vengeance by a fearful word, but too well understood, they commended him to the divine mercy, and heartily prayed that his great sin might be forgiven him. Most of those who had signed this paper did so, doubtless, with perfect sincerity. But it soon appeared that at least one of the subscribers had added to the crime of betraying his country the crime of calling God to witness a falsehood. The events which were passing in the Channel and on the Continent compelled William to make repeated changes in his plans. During the week which followed his triumphal entry into Dublin, messengers charged with evil tidings arrived from England in rapid succession. First came the account of Waldeck's defeat at Fleurus. The king was much disturbed. All the pleasure, he said, which his own victory had given him was at an end. Yet with that generosity which was hidden under his austere aspect, he sat down, even in the moment of his first vexation, to write a kind and encouraging letter to the unfortunate general. Three days later came intelligence more alarming still. The Allied fleet had been ignominiously beaten. The sea from the Downs to the Land's End was in possession of the enemy. The next post might bring news that Kent was invaded. A French squadron might appear in St. George's Channel, and might, without difficulty, burn all the transports which were anchored in the Bay of Dublin. William determined to return to England, but he wished to obtain, before he went, the command of a safe haven on the eastern coast of Ireland. Waterford was the place best suited to his purpose, and towards Waterford he immediately proceeded. 
Clonmel and Kilkenny were abandoned by the Irish troops as soon as it was known that he was approaching. At Kilkenny he was entertained on the 19th of July by the Duke of Ormond in the ancient castle of the Butlers, which had not long before been occupied by Lausanne, and which therefore in the midst of the general devastation still had tables and chairs, hangings on the walls, and claret in the cellars. On the 21st, two regiments which garrisoned Waterford consented to march out after a faint show of resistance. A few hours later the fort of Duncannon, which, towering on a rocky promontory, commanded the entrance of the harbour, was surrendered, and William was master of the whole of that secure and spacious basin which is formed by the united waters of the Shore, the Nore, and the Barrow. He then announced his intention of instantly returning to England, and having declared Count Solmes, commander-in-chief of the army of Ireland, set out for Dublin. But good news met him on the road. Tourville had appeared on the coast of Devonshire, had put some troops on shore, and had sacked Tynmouth. But the only effect of this insult had been to raise the whole population of the western counties in arms against the invaders. The enemy had departed after doing just mischief enough to make the cause of James as odious for a time to Tories as to Whigs. William therefore again changed his plans and hastened back to his army, which during his absence had moved westward and which he rejoined in the neighbourhood of Cashel. About this time he received from Mary a letter requesting him to decide an important question on which the Council of Nine was divided. Marlborough was of the opinion that all danger of invasion was over for that year. The sea, he said, was open, for the French ships had returned into port and were refitting. Now was the time to send an English fleet, with five thousand troops on board, to the southern extremity of Ireland. Such a force might easily reduce Cork and Kinsale, two of the most important strongholds still occupied by the forces of James. Marlborough was strenuously supported by Nottingham, and as strenuously opposed by the other members of the Interior Council, with Carmarthen at their head. The Queen referred the matter to her husband. He highly approved of the plan, and gave orders that it should be executed by the general who had formed it. Carmarthen submitted, though with bad grace, and with some murmurs at the extraordinary partiality of His Majesty for Marlborough. William, meanwhile, was advancing towards Limerick. In that city the army which he had put to rout at the Boyne had taken refuge, discomfited, indeed, and disgraced, but very little diminished. He would not have had the trouble of besieging the place if the advice of Lausanne and of Lausanne's countrymen had been followed. They laughed at the thought of defending such fortifications, and indeed would not admit that the name of fortifications could properly be given to heaps of dirt which certainly bore little resemblance to the work of Valenciennes and Philipsburg. 
It is unnecessary, said Lausanne, with an oath, for the English to bring cannon against such a place as this. What you call your ramparts might be battered down with roasted apples. He therefore gave his voice for evacuating Limerick, and declared that, at all events, he was determined not to throw away, in a hopeless resistance, the lives of the brave men who had been entrusted to his care by his master. The truth is that the judgment of the brilliant and adventurous Frenchman was biased by his inclinations. He and his companions were sick of Ireland. They were ready to face death with courage, nay, with gaiety, on a field of battle. But the dull, squalid, barbarous life which they had now been leading during several months was more than they could bear. They were as much out of the pale of the civilized world as if they had been banished to Dahomey or Spitzbergen. The climate affected their health and spirits. In that unhappy country, wasted by years of predatory war, hospitality could offer little more than a couch of straw, a trencher of meat half raw and half burned, and a draught of sour milk. A crust of bread, a pint of wine, could hardly be purchased for money. A year of such hardships seemed a century to men who had always been accustomed to carry with them to camp the luxuries of Paris. Soft bedding, rich tapestry, sideboards of plate, hampers of champagne, opera dancers, cooks and musicians. Better to be a prisoner in the Bastille, better to be a recluse at La Trappe, than to be generalissimo of the half-naked savages who burrowed in the dreary swamps of Munster. Any plea was welcome which would serve as an excuse for returning from that miserable exile to the land of cornfields and vineyards, of gilded coaches and laced cravats, of ballrooms and theatres. Very different was the feeling of the children of the soil. The island, which to French courtiers was a disconsolate place of banishment, was the Irishman's home. There were collected all the objects of his love and of his ambition, and there he hoped that his dust would one day mingle with the dust of his fathers. To him even the heaven dark with the vapours of the ocean the wildernesses of black rushes and stagnant water, the mud cabins where the peasants and the swine shared their meal of roots, had a charm which was wanting to the sunny skies, the cultured fields and the stately mansions of the Seine. He can imagine no fairer spot than his country, if only his country could be freed from the tyranny of the Saxons, and all hope that his country would be freed from the tyranny of the Saxons must be abandoned if Limerick were surrendered. The conduct of the Irish during the last two months had sunk their military reputation to the lowest point. They had, with the exception of some gallant regiments of cavalry, fled disgracefully at the Boyne, and had thus incurred the bitter contempt both of their enemies and of their allies. The English, who were at Saint-Germain, never spoke 
of the Irish, but as a people of dastards and traitors. The French were so much exasperated against the unfortunate nation that Irish merchants who had been many years settled at Paris durst not walk the streets for fear of being insulted by the populace. So strong was the prejudice that absurd stories were invented to explain the intrepidity with which the horse had fought. It was said that the troopers were not men of Celtic blood, but defendants of the old English of the Pale. It was also said that they had been intoxicated with brandy just before the battle. Yet nothing can be more certain that they must have been generally of Irish race, nor did the steady valour which they displayed in a long and almost hopeless conflict against great odds bear any resemblance to the fury of a coward maddened by strong drink into momentary hardihood. Even in the infantry, undisciplined and disorganised as it was, there was much spirit, though little firmness. Fits of enthusiasm and fits of faint-heartedness succeeded each other. The same battalion, which at one time threw away its arms in a panic and shrieked for quarter, would, on another occasion, fight valiantly. On the day of the Boyne the courage of the ill-trained and ill-commanded kerns had ebbed to the lowest point. When they had rallied at Limerick their blood was up. Patriotism, fanaticism, shame, revenge, despair, had raised them above themselves. With one voice officers and men insisted that the city should be defended to the last. At the head of those who were for resisting was the brave Sarsfield, and his exhortations diffused through all ranks a spirit resembling his own. To save his country was beyond his power. All that he could do was to prolong her last agony through one bloody and disastrous year. Tyrconnel was altogether incompetent to decide the question on which the French and the Irish differed. The only military qualities that he had ever possessed were personal bravery and skill in the use of the sword. These qualities had once enabled him to frighten away rivals from the doors of his mistresses, and to play the Hector at cockpits and hazard tables. But more was necessary to enable him to form an opinion as to the possibility of defending Limerick. He would probably, had his temper been as hot in the days when he diced with Grammont and threatened to cut the old Duke of Ormond's throat, have voted for running any risk however desperate. But age, pain and sickness had left little of the canting, bullying, fighting Dick Talbot of the Restoration. He had sunk into deep despondency. He was incapable of strenuous exertion. The French officers pronounced him utterly ignorant of the art of war. They had observed that at the Boyne he had seemed to be stupefied, unable to give directions himself, unable even to make up his mind about the suggestions which were offered by others. The disasters which had since followed one another in rapid succession were not likely to restore the tone of a mind so pitiably unnerved. 
his wife was already in France with the little which remained of his once ample fortune. His own wish was to follow her thither. His voice was therefore given for abandoning the city. At last a compromise was made. Lauzun and Tyrconnel, with the French troops, retired to Galway. The great body of the native army, about twenty thousand strong, remained at Limerick. The chief command there was entrusted to Boisselot, who understood the character of the Irish better, and consequently judged them more favourably than any of his countrymen. In general, the French captains spoke of their unfortunate allies with boundless contempt and abhorrence, and thus made themselves as hateful as the English. Lauzun and Tyrconnel had scarcely departed when the advanced guard of William's army came in sight. Soon the king himself, accompanied by Auverquerque and Ginkel, and escorted by three hundred horse, rode forward to examine the fortifications. The city, then the second in Ireland, though less altered since that time than most large cities in the British Isles, has undergone a great change. The new town did not then exist. The ground, now covered by those smooth and broad pavements, those neat gardens, those stately shops flaming with red brick and gay with shawls and china, was then an open meadow lying without the walls. The city consisted of two parts, which had been designated during several centuries as the English and the Irish town. The English town stands on an island surrounded by the Shannon, and consists of a knot of antique houses with gable ends, crowding thick around a venerable cathedral. The aspects of the streets is such that a traveller who wanders through them may easily fancy himself in Normandy or Flanders. Not far from the cathedral an ancient castle overgrown with weeds and ivy looks down on the river. A narrow and rapid stream over which in 1690 there was only a single bridge, divides the English town from the quarter anciently occupied by the hovels of the native population. The view from the top of the cathedral now extends many miles over a level expanse of rich mould, through which the greatest of Irish rivers winds between artificial banks. But in the 17th century, those banks had not been constructed, and that wide plain of which the grass, verdant even beyond the verdure of Munster, now feeds some of the finest cattle in Europe, was then almost always a marsh and often a lake. End of section 5